0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hey, folks. Kaiser here. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody about the upcoming China Women's Conference, How Women Are Shaping the Rising Global Power. That's going to be on Monday, May 20th at the Harmony Club in New York City. It's going to be our third annual conference. There are going to be quite a number of very uh, eminent women in uh, a number of fields. We have Arianna Huffington, who's going to be delivering a keynote address. We've got Wayson Christensen, who's CEO of Morgan Stanley. We've got Merit Janow, the dean of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Lots and lots of former Seneca guests you're familiar with. Everyone from Sam Sachs, the amazing Sam Sachs. Virginia Tan, who's founder of Lean In Tech and Teja Ventures. We've also got Lenora Chu, who, of course, is the author of Little Soldiers, a huge star-studded affair. Jeremy and I will be recording an episode of the Cynical Podcast with none other than Charlene Barshevsky, the former U.S. trade representative, who, of course, helped China's entry into the WTO. So make sure to come along and hopefully see you there. Once again, that is May 20th, that's a Monday, at the Harmony Club in New York, you can get your tickets at SupChina, and there are still tickets available, so get them now. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. Through our email newsletter, our app, and, of course, at the website subchina.com. We offer uncensored reporting on everything from the burgeoning tech Cold War to the Belt and Road, from the anti-corruption drive to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from atop the Iron Throne in the kingdom of Tennysonia is Jeremy of the House Goldcorn. First of his name, King of the Andals and the First man, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm. Greet the people, won't you, Jeremy?
2: <laughs> is that a Game of Thrones reference? Oh my god, you're like the one person in the
1: whole world who doesn't get Game of Thrones references.
2: <laughs> well, it sounds very nice. Thank you very much, Kaiser. <laughs> okay.
1: Anyway, the interminable negotiations between the U.S. and China have yet to yield anything too solid, though if market sentiment is anything to go by, there is reason to be optimistic. Uh, There's been talk on both sides of structural reform, and given that Beijing now looks like it won't go forward with what some have feared would be another big, big round of stimulus, some analysts are suggesting that perhaps Xi Jinping and Liu He are serious about delivering on structural change, maybe. Maybe. But
2: is Trump's gambit uh, launching a high-stakes trade war to get China to the table to negotiate? Is that the only way to go? And even if the Trump administration does manage to wrest some concessions from Beijing in this round, it still needs a more coherent approach to managing the U.S.-China trade relationship in the coming decades.
1: Our guest today has some suggestions about just such an approach. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Wendy Cutler. Wendy is vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute and managing director of its Washington, D.C. office. She joined ASPI after a long career as a diplomat and negotiator at USTR, the office of the U.S. trade representative. She is the author, most recently, of a paper titled Strength in Numbers, Collaborative Approaches to Addressing Concerns with China's State-Led Economic Model, which we're going to discuss in depth today. Wendy Cutler, welcome to Seneca.
0: Thank you.
2: Wendy, before we delve into your paper, perhaps we could first get your take as an experienced trade negotiator on where things stand right now with the U.S.-China negotiations. And we're speaking on April 23, 2019.
0: So in my view, we're really at the end game of these bilateral trade negotiations um, with the U.S. delegation now, Ambassador Lighthizer leading the group over to Beijing next week, and then Li He bringing his team back to Washington the first week in May. um, I think we're really close to an announcement um, of a deal between the United States and China.
1: And what do you see as a likely content of such an announcement?
0: I think we're going to see a pretty robust agreement between the United States and China. It will have up to 150 pages of commitments, including market access commitments, purchasing commitments, structural reform commitments, as well as an enforcement mechanism to make sure that China lives up to its obligations under the agreement.
1: That's uh, very good news, and uh, I really hope that 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 (laughs) is the case. Uh, Wendy, before we get into what you actually recommend, though, in your paper, maybe you could lay out for us what you think some of the costs of the unilateral actions or the merely bilateral thinking that we've tended so far to pursue have been. Uh, you talk about how this has left us vulnerable, for instance, uh, some of the ways in which China has been able to play some of our other trade partners off against us in order to fill in gaps uh, left by the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Well, sure. Um, the approach followed by the administration of imposing unilateral tariffs and then pursuing bilateral negotiations has come has, has incurred some cost to the United States, both as a, negos- as, um, a negotiator but also it has had economic effects on the United States. So the tariff increases have hurt U.S. workers, has hurt certain U.S. businesses, and has hurt U.S. consumers, and has really produced an environment of uncertainty, which has just affected investment decisions, has affected markets, and as we're seeing now, global and regional and U.S. economic growth. As a negotiator, also, this approach has led China, for example, to approach Brazil to buy soybeans instead of from US farmers. Mm-hmm. It has led China to make overtures to other trading partners to get them more in Chinese in the Chinese orbit. And um, we've just seen China pursuing arrangements and commercial deals with other countries around the world.
1: Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, soybeans, for example. Uh- being purchased from, from Brazil. Uh, toward the end of your paper, you you note that the talks being as secretive as they've been. Uh, some of our trading partners are pretty concerned that Lighthizer and company might be compelling China to commit to pretty substantial increases in purchases of goods from the U.S., and that this comes at the cost of other countries that export those goods. Uh, I mean, there are other examples besides soybeans. Uh, how much of a worry has this been for our other trade partners?
0: Well, I think they're worried, but right now they don't know the details, and we don't right. know the details. <laughs> <We don't>. um, <laughs> and so one of the recommendations we make in our paper, I think it's really important once the deal is struck, that the United States sends out envoys to these countries and really explains what's in the deal, what's not in the deal, and listens to concerns from other countries. But I would also say that if countries feel that some of the purchasing commitments come at their expense— On the other hand, I think they're going to be gaining a lot from this deal because a lot of what China is going to be agreeing to with the United States will be applied on what we call a most favored nation MFN basis, meaning the other countries are going to get the benefits from these deals. So I just urge everyone to keep their powder dry.
2: Wendy, um, on a related note, if I may point out something obvious, I suspect to anyone familiar with Trump's style. He seems to be a lot nicer to some of our enemies and competitors than to the allies that you think we should be making common cause with when it comes to China. This administration is making cooperation with these allies increasingly difficult, isn't it? For instance, the way that the Trump administration seems hell-bent on systematically alienating allies with the Section 232, uh, 232 tariffs, all the bellyaching about inadequate defense spending by allies, all of that. So is the approach that you propose something that you think this administration would even consider, or is this just pearls before swine in Chinese, or perhaps your target reader is really the next administration?
0: Well, a central recommendation of our paper is that this administration lift the Section 232 tariffs that are Mm. in place, particularly on, on steel and aluminum, but also lift the threat of Section 232 tariffs on auto and auto parts and by doing so i think that will help the united states build a coalition to really deal with issues as important as the role of china in the international trading system
1: hmm. so so it is then you say aimed really at this administration i i mean by, i think any reader could be excused for thinking look uh, these as well intentioned and as 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 well thought through these arguments are <laughs> what are the odds that trump you know with his commitment to sort of unilateralism and his his contempt for multilateral deals is going to be listening.
0: Right. And that's valid. And that was a concern in drafting this paper. But that said, we do we're not suggesting that the administration abandon its bilateral and unilateral approaches with respect to its trade policy. What we are recommending is that they shift the balance, and they put more focus now, particularly with respect to China, on working with other countries. And I will say, particularly with respect to the administration's threat of auto and auto parts tariffs under Section 232, there's not a lot of support either in Congress or among our stakeholders for such an approach. And even within members of the administration, from my understanding, and so I mean, I'm hopeful, um, but I'm not naive <laughs> that um, that people will think twice before pursuing more Section Two Thirty Two actions. Let's hope um, so. I- and in addition, let's recall, let's re- keep in mind. For example, the administration wants to get the new NAFTA, the USMCA, passed by the U.S. Congress. What the U.S. Congress is saying, basically, don't bring us your implementing bill for this agreement until you've dealt with the steel and aluminum tariffs with Canada and Mexico. So that could also suggest that maybe they'll get on a different path um, on these tariffs.
1: Right, right. Uh, So, Wendy, your paper argues that the U.S. actually has a pretty good record in the cases that it's brought against China since China's accession to, to the WTO in 2001 uh, and it argues that you know we should be using these multilateral organizations uh, like especially the WTO um, you also recognize that there's, there's an awful lot that's currently broken about that organization uh, without going into a recitation of everything that's, that's really bedeviled the, the the Doha round over the last what now 18 years can you talk about what needs to be fixed in the WTO in order for you to be able to use it as an organization for multilateral uh, coordination vis a China, and how likely in this administration that this is actually going to happen?
0: Sure. So I think when we talk about the WTO, you're really talking about two functions. One is its dispute settlement function, and the other, its negotiating function. And in our paper, we suggest that the administration work with other countries on potential WTO cases against China, um, against certain Chinese practices that are inconsistent with the agreement. But, as we all know, the WTO dispute settlement system is now under in really in a crisis mode um, as the US. is not supporting the appointment of additional appellate body judges so we'll have to see how that plays out this year with respect to new negotiations in the WTO this has been really difficult for this organization and a lot of this is premised upon the notion that it's a consensus-based organization meaning all 164 members would need to agree on something before it becomes an agreement right so that's that's a huge challenge and you could you could see a situation in fact where the US and China agree on certain things for the WTO and other countries um, come out and oppose it and therefore could block its adoption. In addition, another issue that's really related to the U.S.-China dispute and differences on trade is the fact that China continues to self-declare itself as a developing country under the WTO, which means that it really gets breaks on the commitments it makes. And so this is something else that I really think the WTO needs to take on head-on, not just with respect to China, but with many other countries, which are some of the leading economies in the world, which still want to have it both ways. And um, Mm. that issue needs to be addressed for sure.
2: Wendy, your recommendation about bringing joint cases against China in the WTO, may I ask, is there a precedent for that? And are there mechanisms already in place that would allow that to be done?
0: Yes, and in fact, that has been happening. And under the Obama administration, a record number of cases were taken against certain Chinese practices, whether in agriculture or in financial services or other areas. And in many instances, other countries did join those disputes And so we think that's something that this administration should really look at. But I will say the WTO dispute settlement mechanism, it's useful with respect to China, but it also has its limitations. And its limitations are due to the fact that the WTO rules basically haven't been updated since 1995 and since China's accession in 2001. So a lot of the practices that the United States is having problems with now They're really insufficiently addressed by the WTO, which means that your chances of winning a WTO case are not as clear.
1: Hmm. Wendy, in the section in which you talk about working within the WTO, you emphasize the importance of concluding an agreement on WTO notification reforms. Uh, What are those reforms all about and what makes them so important when it comes to dealing with China specifically?
0: Yeah, so this really has to do with the issue of subsidies. And there's currently an obligation in the WTO for all countries, including China, that they need to report all the subsidies that they're providing to their domestic suppliers. Um, It's a current obligation, it's not being followed by China and by other countries. Obviously, this is difficult for countries to develop an exhaustive list, but the number of notifications are woefully inadequate. And so this proposal that the United States has put forward with a number of other countries is limited in scope, but I think it's a real bellwether in terms of um, the question of whether the WTO is capable of dealing with any of these issues. And before you can even talk about disciplines on subsidies, you need to know what subsidies are in place. And that's what this proposal is basically saying, live up to your obligations, and if you don't, there will be penalties. And in the U.S. proposal, it lists a number of penalties ranging from kind of naming and shaming mm-hmm. um, to to financial penalties.
1: Okay, I see, I see. I just wasn't clear on what exactly you meant by notification reforms.
2: Uh, Wendy, in your paper, you also suggest that beyond uh, the WTO, new coalitions are necessary in some areas. What do you have in mind and what makes these necessary?
0: Well, number one, what makes them necessary, I think, is that You can't mobilize all the WTO members to pursue the issues that you think are important. So I think the United States needs to be open to forming coalitions with different groupings of countries depending on the issue. So for example, China has just revised its investment law, um, and now it's working on regulations to implement the law. And when these regulations are put out for public comment, for example, it'd be a great opportunity for the United States to coordinate with other countries as other countries submit their comments. And this goes on and on with respect to other regulations that are being um, discussed and developed in China. So what we're advocating is that the United States don't get fixated on working with the same countries on certain issues. Think more broadly and think creatively. When an issue comes your way, if you, the United States has concerns, chances are other countries have concerns too. So reach out to to other countries and see if at a minimum you can share information and maybe at a maximum coordinate your responses or even send joint representations to China on what needs to be changed. There's a range of options.
1: Maybe you could give us some examples of of how that might Work for example w- with what you just suggested in uh china's new investment laws and and soliciting commentary from other like minded countries, what are some of the countries uh outside of what we would you know ordinarily a- imagine you know japan and germany and and other eu countries outside of those who should we be looking to form new coalitions with
0: well once again, it would depend on the issue, but at a minimum, I think um we can look at other members of the CPTPP that have already agreed on high standards rules in a number of of the areas of concern with respect to China. Mm -hmm. We can look to other WTO members that have been very active and are very concerned about what's going on with the rules-based system. So once again, the countries would vary depending on the issue. But I think there are countries out there that would be willing to work with the United States and would feel that they would have a better chance to have their concerns heard if they could work in coalitions with the United States and other countries. I would just add a lot of middle-sized and smaller countries are frankly pretty hesitant to approach China and to complain about practices or impending regulations. And if they can work in a coalition of countries, that kind of gives them cover and protection.
1: At the same time, I mean, well, I see some merit in that suggestion. I, I'm also kind of a, a big believer in exercising cognitive empathy in trying to see how Beijing would respond in, in security dilemma sensibility, uh, and isn't Beijing likely to find this kind of strength in numbers approach something that it's it's going to feel ganged up on? It's going to react badly. I, I can just imagine the kind of rhetoric that would emanate from Beijing, stuff about this new Bagua Lianjin, the new eight nations army. It China hasn't responded well, to the best of my knowledge, in the past when it has felt like the nations of this notional west or north have ganged up on it.
0: Yeah, we're not suggesting ganging up. That's, that's just not what we have in mind. It's more about, for the United States, putting more emphasis on working with other countries. And I would almost take issue with what you're saying in certain in, in certain circumstances. So for example, when China joined the WTO, um, I think that the fact that it... That a lot of countries were asking it to do similar things, made it easier for the reformers in China to say, look, we're not just caving to U.S. pressure. We need to do this if we want to be part of the international community. So that's more along the lines of what we're suggesting. That's
2: a
1: very good point, very good point.
2: Wendy, to get back uh, to what you were saying earlier about smaller, uh, medium-sized and smaller countries that might be uh, part of uh, a coalition, together with the United States, some of those countries, particularly the ones in China's immediate neighborhood, uh, Southeast Asia, and even Australia and New Zealand, they haven't been very keen to annoy Beijing. Um, Does China perhaps have too much leverage over them for the United States to successfully engage them in a, a coalition?
0: Well, I mean, that is an issue. Countries in the neighborhood, and not only in the neighborhood, but all around the world, um, have extensive trade and investment ties with China. And they're concerned that if they become very vocal, that China may retaliate. And I mean, those are valid concerns. But that said, if, if, if they can work with a group of countries on not just complaining about China, but coming up with concrete ideas... Um, on how China's practices can be made fair, can be made legitimate, can be made consistent with the spirit and and letter of the WTO. I think that's a useful route to
1: follow. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, Let's focus specifically on Japan for a second here. Uh, Many of us predicted that this was going to happen, that, you know... uh Beijing would hold out an olive branch, and I think it looks like Shinzo Abe has accepted it in the last year or so. I remember, you know, being awake to this when September 18th passed. You know, usually sort of uh, anti-Japan Day in China unofficially, and there was almost n- not a peep coming out of Beijing. You didn't see the usual torrent of of you know, of, of invective coming out of of Beijing. I don't think sino-Japanese relations have been so free of rancor since before 2012 and the nationalization of the Diaoyu or Senkaku Islands. So how well does the Trump administration understand what's happened here and what lessons could we maybe take from this?
0: Well, I can't speak for the Trump administration here, but I do agree that we are seeing kind of a warm, the warming of relations between Japan and China. I don't want to overstate it, um, but just in the past few weeks, particularly on the economic side, We've seen this senior level economic dialogue being restar- restarted after, I think, um, I don't think it's met since 2010. Yeah, um, that's right. And, you know, they discussed a number of issues of cooperation. But my understanding also is that Japan raised a lot of issues of concern that mirror the U.S. concerns. And so that's kind of one of the suggestions in our paper, that if we're talking more to other countries, they understand our concerns. They say, wow, we share these concerns. How can we be helpful? that if, if the same issues are raised by other countries, um, I think then China may recognize the gravity of the situation.
2: Mm. Um, and you don't think that uh, warmer relations with other countries, I mean, for example, South Korea too, things have gotten a lot warmer. Uh, there hasn't been any uh, talk of the, th- the terminal high altitude air defense system anymore in the Chinese uh, state and commercial media the Korean K-pop bands are back in China performing to sell out uh, stadium gigs. So, I mean, uh, what's in it for China's neighbors? I mean, if we take Korea as an example, isn't it perhaps uh, a little too late and relations are already on such a good track with Korea that it will be difficult for the United States to prize Seoul away?
0: Yes, but on the other hand... Korean companies, for example, are very interested and have a vested interest in a strong IPR regime, intellectual property regime in China. And so um, as they look ahead, they, they share a lot of the U.S. concerns about the, the, you know, the theft of trade secrets um, and also forced technology transfer. And so these countries, I get it, they're going to need to figure out how to live in a world, how to navigate through a situation where they have extensive economic ties with both the U.S. and China. In some cases, they have strong alliances um, on the military side with the United States. So each country is going to need to figure this out. But I do think that if the United States spent more time working with our allies and trying to bring them into a coalition Um, trying to address these practices of concern, the fruits of our negotiations would be more meaningful and more endurable.
1: Mm. You flicked just now at the topic of, of technology. Uh, that is one area you could argue that the Trump administration has been trying to corral other countries, and arguably it's the most vital of all the issues involving China, American competitiveness, and this is especially clear with with Huawei and 5G networks, uh, getting not just the five eyes, but all of of the U.S. allies, you know, pressuring them to resist the the lure of cheap networking equipment from Huawei. Uh, so. Um, How does this fit into your thinking? Is this an example of the kind of approach that you would encourage?
0: In our paper, we don't specifically mention the Huawei case, but we do talk, for example, about investment restrictions and that given that the United States has stepped up its investment restrictions against certain Chinese investments in the United States, we suggest that the United States work and coordinate with other countries to see what they're doing in this area. Because for the United States, we don't want to see a situation where we put so many restrictions on Chinese access to our market and that China just turns elsewhere um, and our measures then are less effective. So one of the reasons we think... And we're trying to convince the U.S. administration that it's important for them to work with other countries is to make sure other countries don't fill the void that we might create um, by imposing strong trade or investment restrictions. Hmm.
2: Wendy, you call for expanded coordination and strengthening of investment screening and export controls. Are you envisioning a kind of uh, uh, CFS for the global north and basically getting Japan and the EU to agree to the same restrictions on tech exports to China that Washington has in place?
0: Not necessarily. I think there's a whole spectrum of coordination that can take place. I think it starts with briefing and information sharing. It could then um, expand to coordination of measures. Um, but um, I think it it just depends. But we're not advocating a a CFIUS type of international um, um, regime. This is more about working with other countries. We think it's in our interest to. We understand other countries have their own concerns, um, and so what we want to see is this kind of coordination, this kind of communication getting started, um, and we think that will really benefit the global trading and investment regime.
1: Hmm. Wendy, you mentioned the, your paper mentions the Wassenaar arrangement. Uh, can you first ID that for those of us who don't, aren't familiar with it, and then maybe talk about what its merits and shortcomings might be as a means of trying to restrict tech exports to China?
0: Yeah, well, first, let me admit, I'm not the expert here. But what sure. we <laughs> wanted to point to is that there is kind of a, um, you know, a group of countries that are already working on export controls. And so our recommendation is keeping that grouping already in mind, Maybe we can work with them. So what we did in this paper was kind of survey all of these different arrangements where countries work together. And our objective was to try and raise to people's attentions the possibilities of further work that could be done in these existing international organizations, some which include China, some which do not include China.
1: Fair enough. I mean, although I think we should point out that the Wassenaar agreement actually, <laughs> the arrangement actually includes Russia as a member. So I'm not sure if that's such a great template <laughs> for it. Well, then you know more
0: about it than I do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. So uh, I read a, a really, I think, a quite compelling piece in The Atlantic the other day that made a, a kind of dovish uh, case about trade. It, it was titled a little um, just maybe too exaggeratedly saying, you know, China doesn't cheat on trade. But it, it actually made the case that the U.S. and some of its allies exaggerate the extent uh, of China's cheating on trade. But what I found really, I think what it, what it really got right, uh, is this idea that in going after China so hard, so suddenly across so many dimensions, uh, the Trump administration has really fanned the flames of hostility toward China in popular thinking. And, you know, me being an ethnically Chinese person married to a Chinese national, Jeremy is also married to an ethnically Chinese woman. Uh, we have many close friendships with China, with Chinese people, uh, This worries me and this argument, you know, that there may be profiling, racial profiling coming down, that that a new McCarthyism is stirring. Uh, Do you think that your approach is compatible, I hope it is, with a more calm, less bellicose, less binary attitude when it comes to, to managing the bilateral relationship or the trade dimension of it?
0: Well, I hope so because I think there's a wide spectrum of views in the United States about China. But over time, I, I'm sure you've seen the same. We're seeing more and more people adopting really hardline views. And some of this is really viewed by, is flamed by a real frustration at the lack of um, meaningful economic reform in China. Right. Um, and a lot of their moves globally um, and regionally. My hope is that with a U.S.-China trade agreement in the offing, I think it will be, you know, I think once again, we're in the end game and we'll see a trade agreement soon. We'll see, at least on the trade front, a reduction in tensions in this area, and hopefully this reduction will maybe spread to other areas. I do think we're in a new world now that there's going to be tensions between the United States and China in all of these areas, but I'm hopeful that through the close contacts our negotiators have forged as a result of the U.S-China trade talks, that this could help de-escalate a lot of tensions um, as they are emerging, and may also open the door for, for example, the United States and China to work more cooperatively in the WTO. Um, I think that's a real possibility. If these trade officials from both sides, if they can do a bilateral trade deal, I think they can find ways to work together in the WTO, in APEC, and in other international organizations to um, address some of the issues that we've highlighted, but also other issues that are really critical to address for the global trading
1: system. That's a very good optimistic note, I think, to to wrap up on. I want to thank you again for, for... Uh, for taking the time to join us. Once again, the paper is called Strength in Numbers, Collaborative Approaches to Addressing Concerns with China's State-Led Economic Model. Its author is Wendy Cutler, our guest today, and you can download it on the Asian Society Policy Institute website. I I highly recommend that you do that. Uh, Let's move on right now to recommendations. And uh, Jeremy, as is our habit, why don't you kick us off?
2: Okay. So, uh, you know, when I moved to America, I, uh, was felt sort of illiterate when it came to the wildlife, especially birds. And I'm, uh, as you may know, I like birds. So I've bought a bunch of guidebooks, but I've also discovered a really good app called Merlin Bird ID. I think it's produced by Cornell university and it's free. Oh, wow. And it's this pocket kind of, you know, f- on your phone, uh, bird identification app, uh, that uh, figures out where you are by GPS and, you know, your, the date. And uh, you put in some basic information and it gives you some recommendations and you can listen to the bird song and look at some photos. And anyway, very good app.
1: Oh, great. Merlin Bird ID. Uh, that, will, I'll put it on my phone right next to my plant ID app, which is just also super useful because you know, I've never lived in this part of the country before. and I'm not, I, I don't know a lot of the foliage. So yeah, great. I'll have my flora and fauna all sorted then. <laughs> That's a terrific, terrific recommendation. Uh, Wendy, if you're ready with one, we can go to you now.
0: So, you know, it's interesting when I think about my career as, as, a, as a United States trade negotiator, negotiating with China and, and other countries. One thing that has always kept me going is music. And I always found um, by listening to songs and finding good lyrics that somehow that would energize me for the talks. Um, hear, hear. um particularly fond of, um, and I don't want to show my age here, but of the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. And and I would always find songs um, either from them or even from Taylor Swift. And here I remember one of her more recent songs of we are never getting back together again is
2: something that motivated me (laughs) in really down moments. Is that what you sing when you're negotiating with China? (laughs) No, actually,
0: this was a song I I used a lot during the TPP, actually. It just shows how even if you're negotiating with friends, these talks are really tough. But then there's a Beatles song, We Can Work It Out, and um, I can go on and on. But that just share something that I like to do and something that you know either motivates me or I'll just find lyrics that really capture my mood. Because these types of negotiations are full of so many ups and downs. And there are moments where you just think, I can't bring this together. And I'm sure US, the U.S. negotiating team and the Chinese negotiating team over the past few months know what I'm talking about and probably experienced a lot of ups and downs. So I encourage them to find songs that will help them get through these high and low points.
1: Well, I think that the, the, the correct song for your paper is with a little help from my friends. <laughs> oh,
0: that's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, think, I should have thought of that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's a perfect one. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, Jeremy and I are going to be interviewing Charlene Barshevsky. Uh, so we'll have to come up with a good theme song for that interview, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. I I am going. That's a terrific recommendation. Thank thank you so much, Wendy. Uh, my recommendation is a book I just finished. It's called "Bad Blood: Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup." It's all about Elizabeth Holmes and the company Theranos. Uh, this is written by the, the Wall Street Journal reporter who really broke this wide open. Uh, his name is John Carreyrou. Uh, it's got it all. It's got you know great journalistic sleuthing. Just Surprisingly good pacing, uh, really wicked villains, these brave whistleblowers. Uh, and and uh, no spoilers here, but I mean, everyone knows very satisfying comeuppance for the bad guys in this. So it's a really it's I couldn't believe how well it was written and just how engaging it was. I I, I think anyone would enjoy this book. Uh, it's, again, it's called Bad Blood uh, by John Kerry Wendy, thank you once again for, for taking the time. Uh, we hope to speak with you again before too long.
0: Well, thank you. I really appreciate you um, being open to doing this and helping us get our paper out there a bit. So thank you
2: very much.
1: Uh, it's important that people know this. Thank you. Okay, bye. Hey, Jeremy, good talking to you as always.
2: Yeah, thank you, Wendy. Thanks, Thank kindly. you. Bye.
1: Bye-bye. The cynical Podcast is powered by and It is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcourt with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email and make sure to leave us a rating at Apple iTunes Store. And Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News. We will see you next week. Take care.